Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks. David. Yeah, good to be back. So we are here, as we were last week, to discuss Ralph Moody's novel, Little Britches, subtitled Father and I Were Ranchers. And we're going to get to that. We're going to discuss chapters 7 through 10 in just a minute. Uh, quickly, though, I wanted to make a couple of announcements or adjustments. As you know, after we discuss Little Britches, we will be jumping into Sense and Sensibility. Karen Swallow Pryor will be joining us as a guest host, guest contributor for that conversation. We're really excited about that. And then once that's over, we're going to shift the schedule a little bit because I did get some requests for this and it's been on my mind for a while if we could make it work. So what we're going to do um, for the rest of the summer anyway after we finish Sense and Sensibility, is we're going to talk about Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey. Um, and we're going to go through that at various paces. <laughs> some books we'll do... Some episodes we'll do on one book. Some we'll do on more than one book because it's, it's a long book. But we got a lot of requests for that. And uh, people have asked us over the years if we could do that. So we're going to try it and we're going to see how it goes. And um, you know, if people like that, we can try other similarly long books um, and take our sweet time on them. <laughs> so we're going to do that uh, after that. And we're going to do... I know Heidi and I are going to be on it. And then we're going to at least bring in a number of other people to talk about different books. And I mean, it's, it's hard for people to commit to that many weeks. So we're going to see how we can get uh, make it fun and rotating and get some different voices on there and um, get lots of different perspectives. Maybe we can convince you to come on, Adam. Um, sure. This is the first time I, he's heard of it. So I'm just going to throw it to him. This is news off. to me. <laughs> um, and then also, if you're listening to the plays, the thing... We are discussing Macbeth over on that. We're going to talk about Act 2 this week. So I'll record that tomorrow. So we've got lots of great content. Um, while I'm talking about content, I do want to give you, Adam, a chance to talk about your podcasts at the top of the show. You know, because... Oh, sure. Yeah, I guess people could skip ahead now if they want. But why would they do that when you're talking? So... <laughs> um, but this way, you know, the people sign off early sometimes. Maybe they don't make it to the end of the episode. But just in case we're boring today, I thought I'd let you talk about it at the top. So what do you guys have coming up on, on the uh, Center for Lit podcasts? That is a really good question. Uh, we're, we're, we have two podcasts in our little podcast network. The first one, Bibliophiles, uh, which has been going for some time now. I think we're up to close to episode 70. And our goal nice. is to just talk about all things related to books and reading and uh, kind of get a center for lit take on uh, those subjects. It's a great time. We have a couple of sub sort of series inside Bibliophiles. One of them is called Lit Period which is a semi-academic look at uh, various periods in English language literature down through the centuries. And we sort of take a, a crack at defining the period, describing where and when the period was important, some of the most famous authors and books from that period, uh, and why we, like, uh, why we like books from that period, what we think they're, they're worth, and, and what you can get out of them. Um, the reason I mention it is because our latest episode is a lit period episode on modernism, 20th century modernism and we talk about them the things that make modernism different from the periods that came before and maybe some of the historical changes that produced those literary features and it's a great conversation usually so i invite you all to come to the center for lit podcast network and check out uh lit period our most recent episode of bibliophiles kind of the main the flagship podcast um, was a discussion of G.K. Chesterton's little-known essay, A Defense of Penny Dreadfuls. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. I've never read it. Well, we're doing a kind of another sub-series on books that uh, address the topic of why and how and what to read. 
So books that address the topic of reading as a as sort of an intellectual category, hmm. and uh, found that Chesterton weighed in on this topic back around the turn of the 20th century, and wrote a a short pithy um, defense of pulp fiction for boys that we thought was really uh, fascinating. And some of the points he makes hmm. about why people read that kind of stuff and whether or not it's good were really compelling. Mm. So we discussed that um, recently in uh, Bibliophiles. Those are the kind of topics that we're always taking up. And uh, every once in a while, we also have one called What Are We Reading? And we uh, make one of the members of our crew um, admit to his latest <laughs> reading uh, endeavor. <laughs> and uh, sometimes, um, you know... Is that Nancy, person usually you? Yeah, well, when Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys shows up, and I admit that I've been reading that, uh, it gets a little embarrassing sometimes. But those are, <laughs> those are fun as well. Um, over on the other the other podcast channel that we have is called Radio Read Along, and uh, what we're doing there is um, producing original recordings of classic books read by me or by some of the other people on the Center for Lit staff, and just going through them chapter by chapter with a dramatic reading. Every five episodes or so, we get together and discuss what we've done so far. And that's been really fun as well. We just finished up um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Hmm. And um, I read that uh, in a dramatic fashion. And then we discussed it together a couple hmm. of weeks ago. Nice. Uh, the next one up on Radio Read Along is um, uh, Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, read hmm. by my daughter, Megan, who has um, uh, a sonorous, dulcet voice. And it's be a, great, <laughs> a great episode there too. So People, anyway, that's what we're doing, yeah. I recently heard that when children who read at least five books a day... When they start school, their vocabulary is like a thousand times bigger than kids who don't read before they uh, start school. And I feel the same way about people who listen to this podcast. I feel like <laughs> when people like you are on this podcast, they're, they're making sure that our vocabularies when we start school are going to be extra large. So what did I say? Sonorous. You know, oh, words like sonorous. I mean, then, you know, this is just me enjoying, you know, enjoying words. Um, but yeah, so make sure you check out both of the, uh, both of those feeds. I have... Click that subscribe button on both of those feeds myself, and I highly recommend them. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm always excited that uh, when Center for Lit and Sourcey can kind of partner in these podcasts. As am I. Yeah. So it's fun to do um, Sourcey slash Close Reads slash Center for Lit slash Radio Read Aloud. You know, all the slashes. um, You know, kind of crossover episodes. It's great fun for me. So I hope. I, I'm pretty confident listeners on both sides are uh, are enjoying this. So, well, I appreciate the plug, David. Thanks very much. Yeah, of course. All right, so let's um, let's get talking about Little Bridges. Um, one of the things we talked about last week was it's you know sort of place in the Western, the, well, the canon of American literature in general, and then but then also the the Western genre. And I was thinking about how up through what we read last week, it was sort of that Little House in the Prairie style frontier book. But it really feels like in these chapters, seven through 10, and seven is um, I, Bec- I Become a Horseman. And then 10 is the one that ends, I think it's, what is it? What is it called? It's My, my Friend Two Dog is what it's called. But it seems like we really dive into the archetypes and um, the things that sort of make up the legends of Western literature, Western art, you know, even movies and stuff like that. We get the, we get the cowboy who can do to choose a trick rider and kind of dashing and um, you know, all that sort of thing. We get the, um, we get two dog, right. Who is the native American with a 
mysterious past and the sort of wild frontier guy that he lives with, we get, um, we get Ralph trying to become a cowboy himself and trying to basically do mini cattle drives every day. <laughs> so there's all these different elements that start coming into play bit by bit that, that begin to reveal its uh, westernness. So I don't know that I have a question on that. Um, but I was, I was trying to, th- trying to think about that from a formal perspective. Mm-hmm. Does it feel to you? So I guess I do have a question. <laughs> um, my question is, how is he doing this formally? But I'll ask it more precisely because that's my job. So does it feel to you guys like that is very purposeful in the way that he's laying that out, that he's trying to drop these bits of legendarium, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, into the structure of the novel in a very precise way? Or does it f- feel... I mean, in some ways, it also feels sort of episodic. So. Is there some sort of tradition that it seems like he's following in doing this and dropping things in this way? It doesn't even have to be speaking to the Western genre. Um, but I'm just wondering if this if this reminds you of anything else or how how that sort of uh, meets your ear, meets your eye, so to speak. Heidi, you just responded vocally. So I'll let you yeah. uh, go first. <laughs> sure. Whether... Let it be a lesson to you. <laughs> <laughs> Feign interest in the question. I'll let you talk first. <laughs> right. Um, well, and I would like to point out that Adam did indeed compliment you on your questions earlier. So I am not the only one who begins every answer with the phrase. That's a really good question. Um, uh, but it is a good question. And, and, you know, whether or not it was intentional or not, he certainly, as you, as you point out, David, hits a lot of formal elements in the development of a story. Last week on the podcast, we talked about um, the Western genre in general and how it uh, kind of mirrors or reflects some of the quest narratives from medieval and ancient literature. So you see Mm -hmm. that again here. You also have kind of a coming of age uh, angle to this uh, to this novel mm-hmm. uh, with two dog and um, uh, some of the other characters we get that if you I'm doing air quotes here like the other archetype right the outsider the scapegoat who ends up kind of having a heart of gold and 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 becoming more of a a guide or mentor figure or a hermit figure those are some of the the archetypes that might be represented in those particular characters and then of mm-hmm. course there's the rise of the hero. Um, archetype that's happening here, you know, kind of the, the, the hero uncovering his natural talent and developing it uh, by through various influences and having to overcome certain challenges. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of literary archetypes play out in this, uh, in this story. Mm. I love how in a Western story in particular, <clears throat> there's this ability to take these archetypes and, you know, these sort of metaphors at play and just make them very literal. <laughs> like right. the idea of just like getting bucked off the horse, you know, you got to get back on again. I mean, I know that there's a reason these sort of metaphors and sayings, these aphorisms that they come from real life, but in Western stories, you know, maybe it's just that we live in America. So our, that's where all our sayings come from. But as a young person growing up, you have to just keep learn to get back up on the horse. Right. <laughs> yep. and, and stories like this, it's just made literal. It's literal. Adam, Adam do you have anything to add to that? Well, I was just thinking, based on what you said, that I wonder if another thing to keep in mind as we're reading this one is that, and maybe a, a question to answer for ourselves as we're reading this one is, how much of this is literal? Right. And, and actually 
comes directly from the author's autobiographical remembrances of his childhood. I mean, I think it's probably it's probably fair to assume that he he doctored a few uh, stories up to make them more interesting. But um, right, yeah, yeah, like we certainly Ingalls Wilder did. Yeah, but we certainly have at least on the surface the author representing himself as a as a first person autobiographical narrator telling you about his childhood and it would be an interesting interpretive question to decide whether he is doing that purely as a as a, a structural narrative device and he has decided to tell the autobiographical childhood reminiscence and then work it into the western genre or if he actually grew up in Colorado as a kid and is starting with his own experience and telling it in as in as colorful a way as he can as he can think to do it, D- depending on which answer you give to that question, that's going to determine the kind of the kind of interpretation you put to it. Because, for example, if it's the second one, and he's actually just happened to grow up in the Denver area in whatever years he says it was, then the fact that those elements um, show up in the story means a couple of things. Either he has watched as many Western movies as the rest of us have and is, <laughs> you know, unconsciously sliding in the archetypes or those archetypes actually come from details of American history that he actually ran into. And there really was an Indian called Two Dog and that's really how he acted. Which is slight, those are slightly different uh, conclusions, I think. Right. Well, and I don't know much about the history of this novel. Do you? Is this a memoir or is it a novel? Oh well, I think it's a novelized memoir. I think it's a novelization of real real events. Right. Um I'm I'm I mean he lived in Colorado. I mean he um he was born in New England and moved to Littleton, Colorado in 1906. So and it really is true that they moved there in hopes of improving tu- his father's tuberculosis. So mm-hmm. that all is is factual. Um so let's say let's say it's he did well, I mean, even if he lived there, he could have seen these things and actually experienced them himself, or he could have experienced them himself and then, you know, made them a little bigger than they were, right? Right. right. So, given, I guess the question is given that we know that he lived there, how does that change your interpretation then of the story in general, Adam? Well, I, I think it, I would probably make it. I think that would make my conclusion be a little less interpretive and a little bit more, um, I don't know what the opposite of interpretive is. I, <laughs> I would say that two dog is not an archetype so much as right. he, a, um, a person that the young Ralph Moody actually met. I'd be and curious. So he's not a, he's not a literary device, but he's a, he's a remembered person. And I think there's a, a, a difference there. Is that what you're yeah. after? Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting that's qu- really interesting question that you're asking there because it makes me it makes me wonder um could could he be huh so could he be both a remembered person and an archetypal sort of play an archetypal sort of role in the story at the same time Absolutely. I, yes. And I think that's what makes Adam's question so very interesting is are, are these archetypes then just kind of drawn from ordinary life? Does every human, as you go back, like, let's say we're all kind of thinking about our own lives. uh, Do we have these archetypes embedded 
within the course of our own lives. And that's how they get into literature, right? And so if that's the case, then maybe even if Two Dog is a remembered person, but it's a fictionalized account, somehow along the way, he made the decision to make him, you know, either it was just absolutely factual and this is just exactly how it happened, or he made an interpretive decision to portray him in the novel in a certain way in order to fit more of a formal approach to what makes a good story. And that's interesting. Adam, do you, so she, so she says enthusiastically, absolutely in answering my question, do you agree with her? Wait, wait a minute. Absolutely. What did, what, Heidi, what did you say? <laughs> I don't remember what that Well, I said, I just said, because you were talking about how maybe it's a remembered person and not an archetype. Right. So and could it be both a remembered person and then also someone? Yes. Can, can, it, can it be both of those things at the same time, in your opinion? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously think that's true. If, if, um, if he said, if he was looking back at his own life and someone said to him at some point, man, your childhood would make a great novel. <laughs> yeah. And he looked back at his childhood and said, I think you're right. Based yeah, on my knowledge he, yeah. of what makes a great novel and my knowledge of the archetypes that go into a Western story, my life kind of matches a few of those. And I could probably, you know, tweak a, a story here and tweak a story there and come out with a, with a um, autobiographical reminiscence of a Western of growing up in the West that would be recognizable to people. And so, yeah, I think there's probably, and you could probably mix those two. Mm-hmm. I guess what I was saying is that it might be more fruitful as a reader to, um, to decide which of those two things is primary and then to read it that way. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think in, in, in Moody's case, since we know where he came from and we know he actually did grow up there, that this is, that it might be most productive to say, aha, this is a guy remembering his childhood. And that thematically speaking, that may be the general thrust that mm-hmm. it, there's not first and foremost, a contribution to a genre, mm-hmm. but first and foremost, a, a meditation on the relationships that made up his childhood. Even as it sort of, became a contribution to a genre, even right. if that wasn't his intention. So right. you said it might be more productive. And so in trying to anticipate, you know, what the listener might be thinking, my my next question for you then is uh, productive towards what end? Hmm. Uh, um, I think the end is always the same in my view. The, the productive end, uh, for an end of reading to be productive, um, you will have understood the author's main idea from what appears to be the author's perspective. So in other words, you want to have the conversation that the author wants to have with his novel. And that's why this question is important. Mm-hmm. What the author's trying to do is, is, is participate in a genre study or something. That's, his goal is slightly different than if he says, this is, this, these are the people I came from mm-hmm. and this was my childhood. And so I, a, I would say that a productive reading is a reading where you are um, in tune with the author and his goal hmm. to the highest possible degree. So how do you, um, I, I'm again, in trying to anticipate listener questions, then um, maybe, maybe I'm just asking you questions that are going to have you talking in circles, but how do you, um, how do you go about being confident that you have a sense of what the goal was? I mean, there's ways you, I could, I was going to ask, how do you know what the goal is? But I think there's a certain degree to which, like if you're going to, pursue a conversation towards the direction of the goal. I don't know why I say towards, I don't know why I say the British version. Um, (laughs) uh, How do you, how do you move towards confidence that you know what that goal is? I mean, what are the, I guess maybe the question is what are the clues you're looking for? 
Well, I would always start with just the structural clues of the uh, the, you know, the basic story questions that all the the novels that have ever been written sort of have in common. And, you know, you've got your, your little main character, mm-hmm. little Ralph, who's got a series of, of things that are burning in his breast that he wants to accomplish or questions that he wants to answer or obstacles yeah, he wants yeah. to get over. I mean, in these, in these chapters, seven through 10, it has to do with horses primarily, doesn't it? He <laughs> really, really wants to ride a horse and be a horseman. And yeah. We, yeah. Chapter seven is I become a, a horseman of sorts, and he wants to <laughs> he wants to herd cattle, and he is willing to risk his reputation with his family, his reputation with his father. He's willing to risk doing bad stuff in order to achieve this goal of of horsemanship. Hmm. And uh, so the author clearly did that on purpose, hmm. and that was one of his his goals in this section was to paint for us a picture of young Ralph as a guy for whom the goal of horsemanship trumps a lot of other things that he was learning or were very important doing Mm -hmm. the right thing, obeying his father, that kind of stuff. And that's that in and of itself right there places it within this Western tradition as well, because like the idea of the horseman is sort of this, I don't want to say ultimate ideal, but one of the ideals of, the cowboy, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, even perhaps even of of um, the Western, even more so, I think, sometimes than hunting down the bad guy or whatever it is. There's this relationship between man and horse. Um, sometimes, you know, in the really subversive ones between a woman and a horse, um, that seems to define the genre, the tradition, um, in, in a way that, and some, in, in, in to the degree that sometimes you have go on for chapters on end where it's just the man and his horse. Um, yeah. And then of course you get in the movies, I mean, you get Roy Rogers and what silver and no, yeah, right. No, Roy, Roy Rogers, who was his horse trigger trigger. And then the Lone Ranger and silver. And so you get these, you know, the, it didn't even matter who the women were, who the girl was that was in the relationship or even the sidekick to some extent, it was the cowboy and his horse. Um, and so, that that's sort of archetypal in and of itself. And so it's, he's, he, as you said, he's sort of single-mindedly pursuing this goal of being a cowboy. Um, yeah. And I guess what I would say to it is that it is it, painting this picture of, of young Ralph for us. And uh, you know, similar to young Tom Sawyer in the Mark Twain novel um, uh, he's, he's trying to, to, uh, branch out and trying to push out and trying to to explore and become in ways that are appropriate to his age and his position and his moment in history but but maybe the most important thing about it is the risk that he runs uh to do all that stuff that yeah. um with with respect to his father and his family and his other responsibilities and that mm-hmm. tension that's created that of which horsemanship is really just the occasion mm-hmm. that tension is really what i think it seems like the author is is taking us through for some thematic purpose cuz don't you worry that he's going to get caught i mean right when he when he sneaks back from this from the creek and goes and gets on the horse and he's looking up and he says, if they're doing a short poem, I won't have time. But if they're doing a long poem, I will have time. And he's willing to take that chance. Mm. <laughs> that was kind of a cool scene. Wow, dude, you really have this. Uh, this is a, a hot desire in your heart. If you will, you don't even know which poem they're reading. Yeah. A coin yeah. Flip. yeah. Yeah. 
I was thinking a lot about um, just in turn. I was I was thinking a lot about whether this the question of like how bad is what he did actually? How bad? It, I mean, like he's not being responsible or doing what his parents would want him to do. But like, if I was his father, how mad could I actually get at him for that? Hmm. As and I don't mean I don't mean that we're I don't mean that we should judge. Like, I'm not saying let's judge Ralph Moody for having this character do this, but just mm-hmm. as a dad having kids and seeing the desire that's burning in his breast, as you put it, seeing what's going on in the heart and the soul of this character, how bad how mad could I actually be if I was the character of Ralph Ralph's dad? I, and I, I don't know that I totally have an answer for it. <laughs> Where do you stand on that, Heidi? Like, if you, I mean, I mean, you're you know. A mom. Well, I'm not, yeah, but I'm also yeah. yeah maybe it's a little different from mom, and also I'm not asking you to put necessarily put yourself in the shoes of his mom because we know how sure. his mom feels about it. Like it's not it's pretty clear <laughs> how she feels about the whole thing. Pretty mad. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, there's also this question of like sometimes, sometimes you need to give kids room to take risks and fall out of trees and stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I don't want to get into like a big parent debate about you know how about free range parenting or anything here. Right. Um, they didn't really have a chance to free range parent. They just lived on the free range. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting question to me. It's not like a literary question. I admit that. Right. Right. Um, but so it, is in the, it is even within the world of this story. That's the, um, part of any coming of age story or any Western story, any kind of genre fiction. When, when you have a main character, who's uh, the story tells the trajectory of their growth and their realization of, of the role they're supposed to play in this story, usually a heroic one, right? But usually that's what a protagonist has at some point to become something that he or she was not at the beginning of the story. And that's particularly true in coming of age stories in which a child then becomes um, and a, a more mature, either adult or somebody who's learned something. So he is going from dependence to independence through these series of choices. And the question is, is he going to be worthy of that? Is he going to do that in a, in a manner uh, that, will, uh, that will make him the hero of this tale? So, um, and we do see it from behind his eyes. And so we're rooting for him. If, it was this, if this was a story about motherhood, we might see it very differently. <laughs> mm, that's so, a good point. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point because, and I think that goes right back to the idea of the of the protagonist, the identity of the exactly. protagonist. Yes. If Ralph's mother is the protagonist of this story, then his actions in the whole first half of this novel become a species of threat. Yes. To as a source of the conflict that's presumably driving the story forward. But if he's the protagonist, then um, then she becomes a supporting character, and yeah. her. Her She's worries an obstacle, and fears then. Yes. Are, are an obstacle. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Right. I I always think of this section as being kind of like, you know, the training section, like Batman Begins. Right? He has to exactly. He gets whisked off to the hero to like have to go through all these uh, various, I don't know, variations of karate training or whatever it was that he did at Batman Begins. It's been a long time since I saw that movie, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah. it, there's this training going on. Of course, interestingly, it's not you know for a Western, it's not training in firearms or anything like that it's training in 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 as his father put it learning to think like a horse you know learning to be respectful of the animals which I, which i think is very telling um mm-hmm. about, about the intentions of this story this is not a story you know to use death, you said goals but um you know this is not 
it's it's telling us this is not a story about a boy who's going to go off. Most likely, it would seem weird of a boy who's going to go off and fight, you know, Billy the Kid or something. This is a story that's going to be centered around this concept of thinking like a horse, like and being respectful and yeah. uh, being respectful to the to the life that is in that horse. We can right. go ahead. Yeah, I think that I'm not sure who you were talking to, but um, I couldn't tell. It's yeah. I got that weird sound like someone was going to say something. <laughs> well, and I think you're bringing up a really interesting line of inquiry in this story, which is the relationship of the geography of the land and the animals as inhabitants of the land, and and how Ralph or uh, has to then become integrated into that society. So. Uh, and and take on some of the characteristics of wildness um, of the land and the animals in order to become, you know, whoever it is he's supposed to be by the end of this story. And also part of the community. Exactly. Part of the, you know. Yes. Well, in any kind of hero, you're talking about that that training thing. Like, I think that you're interpreting that exactly right. That that um, in in the character development in a story like this, that's kind of a mix of genre fiction and coming of age and the heroic quest. Uh, we have the character moving from disorder to order, from ignorance to knowledge, from isolation to community, from wandering or rootlessness to home, from fragmentation to unity, that kind of thing. All, all, all so that that character can achieve some sense of harmony and unity within the story so that we walk away satisfied being like, wow, that, that boy sure went through a lot as he became a man. That was a satisfying story hmm. and accomplished some kind of great obstacle and then became who he was supposed to be. Hmm. Hey, I got to go. I, I got to go back to Adam for a second Yeah, because I asked, I, I got to ask him that question again about how mad he'd be. <laughs> Ask it again. So I was just saying how how much how mad should how much trouble should he get in for the for the for like the thing you were describing about he snuck away from the creek picnic and and you know wanted her to ride her like if you were if this was one of your kids or something like that you know how how mad would you be? And again, <laughs> I'm not asking you to judge Ralph Moody or thinking about it in a literary perspective. I'm just curious. It's just interesting to think about because it's a story about growing up as a parent. Yeah. You know, all the fears. I think it's interesting to think about it from the perspective of a parent who has raised boys and right. has dealt with these questions yourself. I'm sure. I mean, maybe they didn't sneak away from the creek when your wife was reciting poetry to ride a horse they weren't supposed to ride. Maybe right. they did. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I've, and I, maybe it's in particular I'm asking because I've got seven and six year old boys and three year old, almost three year olds who are crazy people and I don't have anything <laughs> to do with them. So if anybody has any advice, just. I'm well, sure. that's really interesting. I think that, um, and that, and I don't think this is too far afield of from the themes of the novel because the mm-hmm. the theme of of coming of age is really, in my mind, kind of secondary. At least in the in the, in the beginning of the story, to the theme of parenthood. Mm-hmm. Ralph is self consciously a a child of parents still by you know that, uh, chapter. That, yeah, 10. that's interesting. That's interesting. And, and and so I think parenting is the is by far the strongest influence on him. And and the the personalities of his mother and in particular of his father are are just gigantic in proportion mm-hmm. um, early on. I think they I think they will remain so. My guess is that they'll remain so throughout the novel. But but here in the first chapters, they're just they're just huge. And so the question of um, uh, how he's being parented is really a central one. And 
from my own perspective, that one of the, the key elements of parenting, especially parenting boys, is knowing when to let them make their own mistakes. And, and it really goes, not just parenting, but education generally is all about mm. you know, teaching a man to fish rather than just giving him a fish, right? And so, so when do you say, okay, it's time to figure out how to uh, make your own decisions and deal with the consequences of them uh, on your own? And I just step back and don't do everything for you anymore. And watching how Ralph's father does this uh, in, the, in these first few chapters is really kind of stirring in places. Because obviously the authors got him idealized, right? Looking back on sure. his past, which was which was clearly a happy one in many respects, and so he's kind of, he's sort of Atticus Finching, his father, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, in this in this scene that we were talking about, I think his dad does the right thing. He just says, you know, this is I can see the elements of of incipient manhood you know, sticking their heads up here and we're going to let that go and cup the hand so that <laughs> is this the one where he cups his hand so it sounds like he's yeah, getting yeah. the beating of his life but it doesn't really hurt and and Ralph says and i howled to make up the difference <laughs> yeah yeah that was pretty awesome i i, I would l- like to think that in that in that um situation i would have handled it like ralph's father did <laughs> <laughs> I, the distinction you made between you know um coming of age with parents versus well, say a coming of age story with parents versus coming of age story without parents is really interesting. At least that's one of the things that I took away from what you were saying. Because so often the coming of age stories, especially the ones we've mentioned, you know, the Huckleberry fans, so so many of them are orphan stories. Yes. Um, and this is a story where it's about coming of age within the context of parents. And so there is there is this sort of inherent tension, right, between um coming of age and becoming your own person and being free of your parents. And that being the purpose of parenting, but then also the job of parents to, you know, take care of their children and keep them from being hurt at where possible or appropriate and all the things that go into that. And that that's the, you know, that, that being the constant tension between parents and children, between coming of age and parenting is, is a rich sort of minefield of tension for a story to be built around. And oh, I feel yeah, like for sure. it's not done as often you know, it's, it's, I think maybe it's just easier to write the story or it's just more, you know, as someone once told me, my friend Josh once told me that, you know, orphans are free to have adventures. So it's easy to build an adventure around an orphan. But there is still this, you know, this inherent tension between those two poles of parenting and coming of age that is, I think, really moving, especially for parents. I wonder if this book is more moving to parents than it is to children for that reason. Hmm. That's a good I question. I don't, I don't know. Ask some kids and see what they yeah. say. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't. I don't know how. I'm sure people. Read, I know people read it with their kids. I haven't read it with my kids yet. Actually, it's weird. Um, but did you? So, do you have? I mean, Adam, having raised, do you have four boys. I have four sons. Yep, four, four sons. sons and two daughters. So, did you find? Um. This is the se- this is this this segment of Close Reads where David asks for parenting advice from Heidi and Adam, <laughs> brought to you by Radio Read Aloud. Um, <laughs> uh, did you find that you had to deal with scenes like like that, that mirrored this one with Ralph and sneaking away with your daughters differently than you did with your sons? Oh yeah, oh absolutely. I mean, there's there's a there's a a different um, definitely a different flavor to dealing with. Uh, my daughters that are that are trying to figure out who they are and take a risk and take a chance and the way my sons tend to do it that may be because <laughs> of the difference between my wife and me I don't know but hmm. yeah I would I would say that uh, 
one of the important um, techniques of parenting is to is to uh, parent the kid as if he's an individual rather than a uh, a line from a textbook, if you know what I mean. Hmm. And so the the uh, I think the boy girl distinction is obviously a really important one. <laughs> Well, my girl's four months old, so she's really not trying to do anything by herself. <laughs> Except roll over. She tries There's to a lot that. of work at that stage, but boy, it sure is simple compared to yeah. what comes after. At least, especially, I think, especially like psychologically. <laughs> um, it's funny because this is a book about... How old is he? 10? Is he supposed to be 10 years old? Something like that? I think eight. Eight or... Okay. So my oldest is going to be eight in September. And so I... I even now I sense so many of the similar tensions in, you know, having a seven, these seven and six year old boys who are constantly, Colt is just constantly trying to carve out his own independence already. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's he wants to just be able to get up and, I don't, it's little things like get up and make his own breakfast or climb the magnolia tree till he's probably going to fall and break his neck. You know, the, yeah, it, it runs the gamut of things and it's just this, it feels like there's this constant tension all the time of, trying to identify when the moment is right to let him do that. And then having to push back against that, because when we push back against it, it, that, it then that's where the tension comes between the parents and the kids. And yeah. you can see that a little bit in, in the story where he respects his daddy, loves him and he appreciates the way his dad treats with treats him, but he knows he's doing the wrong thing, but there's something burning inside of him that he, he almost can't resist it. Mm-hmm. Like there's, it's, he can't right. resist the temptation. Well, and it's not objectively wrong. I think that's what makes the story pretty endearing to yeah, parents um, and just and to children. Yeah, he's not hearing. he's not like getting into a gambling problem. It's the disobedience of his to his parents, specifically his mother, that's wrong. It's the sneaking and the deceit that's wrong. It's not the riding the horse that's wrong. So mm. it's not that he snuck off to steal money from the shopkeeper, right? And so. Right. That that those that idea of that because it's not objectively wrong because it's actually something that's going to promote his independence and his individuation um, and kind of help form him in towards his future that makes it an endearing episode in his life for those of us who are readers. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Do you want to say something else about that? No, I just wanted to agree out loud. Okay. <laughs> Adam, I appreciate that. Affirmation is a good thing. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so do you think that there is a difference? Do you th- it, so? There's obviously a difference between his father and his mother in how they're responding to the things that he's doing, um, and you see that in the scene that Adam just referenced. But do you think that she sees she's having a harder time? It seems like accepting that there is some good or value in the things that he's, you know, in riding the horses and becoming a horseman, becoming sort of, you know, a cowboy. You know, she says that, she says in that scene, it says mother was furious after she got over being scared, which is, that's, that's pretty Mm -hmm. funny. And demanded that father gave me a good hard spanking. She said she could talk to me till he was black in the face and it wouldn't do a bit of good because my wickedness was so great that it had killed my conscience. That was a great line, by the way. I love that. So I'm wondering, is, is that just a little bit of motherly hyperbole, or is she, or is there, um, you know, is there something? Is she is she grappling with the inherent values of the things that he is learning to value? Whereas the father is sort of clo- he, he sees, you know, the problem is the disobedience. It's not the thing itself. 
it seems right. like the father and the mother are on sort of different ends of the spectrum as far as that their perspective on it on the behavior. Yeah, I think it's the I think it's both of those things that you just said that he there there is something about being a mother that makes your brain like fall out of your head when it comes to your kids <laughs> taking risks. So there's like the, a child climbing a tree, if it is your own child and you're that child's mother, that child is going to fall and die within seconds of climbing that tree. There is now a magnet on the ground that is pulling the child down to inevitable doom. That's how mothers think. Plus, I think what you said is really important about her wrestling through her through Ralph's struggle for independence within the society that he's now integrated in, right? Like now he is a rancher. That's the subtitle of the book. Father and I were ranchers. She wants him to be a gentleman. She doesn't want him to forget where he came from. She doesn't want him to forget kind of these, these values and in, in polish of the East. And, mm-hmm. and yet here he is climbing trees and, 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 riding off into the sun, like literally riding off into the sunset. So this is a terrifying thing for a mother on multiple levels. And so, plus he's already lied to her and been reprimanded and disobeyed um, about something very dangerous. And so, yeah, she's, his wickedness is so great. It has killed his conscience. So that's, (laughs) I, I think in, from the perspective of a worried kind of conflicted mom, this isn't an overreaction, but to the child, it just seems kind of ridiculous. And of course, she's probably going into motherly hyperbole also because she can tell maybe her husband isn't taking it quite as seriously as she is. And so that's, she's reacting to that some, I'm wondering too. I love that next line too. Nothing but fear of bodily pain would save me from a life of crime. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I think the um, it's a the, that's a wonderful paragraph. You have all the the voices yep. that Heidi's mentioning, plus the voice of the author, the 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 reminiscer, yeah, uh, speaking as well, right? So so Ralph, the protagonist, is eight, and his voice comes through, and his mother, who's an adult and has all of those fears that Heidi's describing, her voice comes through, and then also Ralph, the adult author. Yeah looking yeah. back right. on it with kind of a wry smile because everything's in perspective now comes yeah. through. And I think that life of crime hook at the end of the sentence sort of puts all those things together. I just so thought it was right. glorious. Mm. I, I love how it, it lends an air of um, humor to it as well, because then that makes us not, not judge either of them too harshly. It makes us not look, you know, look at the mother like she's, you know, I don't know, um, some orphanage, or something like, <laughs> like that. a prison warden <laughs> right there's a there's a there's it allows us to have a sort of it allows us to have the right perspective about her and sort of maintain that and i one of the things i like about this novel is that it even as you know i love adam that you talked about how so much of this early part of the novel is about parenting because it allows us to have so much empathy for her yeah. Ralph clearly looking back values her commitment to quote civilization, you know, um, to the place that they came from. Um, and he values her determination to preserve that in this new place. Um, and so I think that, that the, that, that general tone allows us not to just enjoy this yarn about this kid and his adventures and have fun, but to have a lot of empathy with the mother. Right. Well, I agree. And his description of the way she reads to them is so beautiful mm-hmm. and so honoring. It is very clear that his memories of his mother 
our bond and mm-hmm. that she's a very normal kind of mom. Like mm-hmm. she's not pathological. She's, you know, there's plenty of stories like that with <laughs> the crazy mom. Um, but this isn't one of them. This is just, she's worried. She's stressed. She's anxious. She's making some mistakes. Uh, she'd like to hold him back and keep him uh, fenced in in order to protect him and to protect what she values and she makes some mistakes along the way, but she's a real, very normal mom and he clearly loves her very dearly and, and um, values w- what she instilled in them. I love that description of the reading. Yeah, that was really good. The idea that, that she's she's preserving a uh, a culture in her family. And, yes. And it's it, it maybe doesn't fit the the land they're living in super well, but uh, he doesn't think any the less of her for that. Right. Well, mm. and I have to say the way probably all of us parent doesn't necessarily fit the the general prevailing culture around us because we are trying to preserve something. That's yeah. part of what all three of us are doing with our families um, mm. as well. And so that that she would want to give her children who are living in in, I mean in this environment, like a life of letters is a big deal. And he clearly right. honors that. And that's probably a huge part of how he becomes a writer as an adult. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because I actually wanted to say this at the top, but it, it's actually probably better as it worked into the conversation. But it's April Monday, April 15th. Um, we're recording a little late because I, I was sick over the weekend. But about three hours before we got on the air, the air, I say, on the record, you know, on the internet to record was the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I was thinking, I was running some errands earlier. I watched the the footage for a while. And I was thinking about it, how this is a thousand year old, you know, almost a thousand year old. 850 church. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been, it's been restored at various times. Um, And and it looks like from what I can tell and what people are saying, it's not going to just be complete rubble. I mean, the much of it will be destroyed, but there'll be some of the facade at least that they can, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what they'll do with it, but I don't, I don't know. The last time I looked was about, you know, right before we got on. So it's been over an hour, but, um, but what I got to think, thinking about was one of the, you know, you know, on shows like this and in the work that we all do, one of the things that we constantly talk about is this idea of preserving culture. And, mm-hmm one of the reasons we have to do that in our schools and in our homes and in our own lives and the lives of our children is because, you know, beautiful things like that, beautiful and powerful and amazing as they are, is they're not going to last forever. You know, mm-hmm. fires are going to come and the, you know, the, the, you can restore it all you want. You can add the spire in the early 1900s, but you know, lo and behold, in the middle of a multi-million dollar restoration, something like that happens. And that's why, you know, the work that we're doing in the homes and in our lives and in our souls and in the souls of our children, that's the preservation that has the chance to endure all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I couldn't help but think about that. You know, uh, we've been told that, you know, these things are just not going to last and we're seeing that now and it's tragic and terrible. Um, But in a sense, you know, we can, I mean, we can't maybe go to it in the same way we used to be able to, but we can, preserve it in some ways and we can preserve what it means even more importantly, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that she's after, you know, she's trying to preserve what the things that she's preserving meant and trying to 
make them mean something within the souls of Ralph and his sisters and his little brother. And right. that's like, that's the work of parents that's both empowering and traumatizing at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right when you say it's as close uh, it's as close to permanent as a as a human work can be. I think that's yeah. that's uh, that's a good idea. Um, I love I love the, the one the one the first chapter we read is I become a horseman, and the second the next chapter is become is I become a sort of cowboy. <laughs> I become a sort of cowboy, and then the next chapter is his grace. He tries it too. <laughs> yep. But then we get to this chapter about. Uh, my friend two dog and it's two dogs the indian that stays in the barn and he has this other guy um mr thompson who's accused of being a horse thief and his parents welcome them into welcome them into the home and so there you get this sort of intersection of you know maybe you get this intersection of the wilderness coming into the civilization you know all these sort of tensions that come into play and these images mm-hmm. that are really interesting do you um I was thinking a lot about... Now, let me say, I was reading this while hallucinating because I was sick. Um, (laughs) But I got to thinking about the way strangers come into stories. And I was trying to figure... You know, I was trying to think about um, even like... Strangers coming in as like these sort of mentor characters in, in stories of coming of age and even a parenting and stuff like that. And so I got to thinking about whether the the different perspectives on these guys. So we've got Mrs. Corker and who's calling him a horse thief. And mm-hmm. then you've got the parents who welcome him in and the father says, well, we don't know the whole story, but probably does have lice actually. Um, and then we get this sort of innocent perspective of Ralph. So are we supposed to, do, do you think we're supposed to read these guys from Ralph's perspective? Like, are we supposed to... Um, read them in this, you know, as his friends, as these sort of harmless, but adventurous and very interesting curiosities, sort of, you know, that he's just sort of taken by or, well, I'll just ask that. How, how do you think, I mean, what's the, whose perspective do you think is, is the one that we're really supposed to, is most valid is the one that we're supposed to um, take most stock in. I mean, are we supposed to be afraid of them? You think? Oh, I think I think we should take our cue from the protagonist in on this particular one, uh, and that that um, connection that Ralph feels with Two Dog right from the beginning because he's he's interesting and compelling, and he goes and sits with him and sits by him and brings him a blanket, and you know they share the blanket, and and then when he gets or brings him his dinner first, and then Two Dog puts his hand on the boy's knee and pats it three times and. He tra- he describes how he understood that what that meant was we're friends now, yeah. and uh, y- you're supposed to read that and go, ah, yes, this is one of the relationships in the story that is a source of um, beneficial effects to everyone. And uh, also, I think the fact that Mrs. Corcoran is the one who tells us that he's a no good engine or whatever it was, and that the other guy's a horse thief, horse thief Thompson. The fact that that's coming out of Mrs. Corcoran's mouth should prejudice you as a reader against it Mm -hmm. because she's not one of the characters that we're going to look to for our, uh, for guidance Mm -hmm. as the story goes along. Mm -hmm. I I saw someone say once that they thought this was this whole scene, the scenario and and the way Ralph just gravitates 
and builds this relationship so quickly that it was a little bit saccharine, you know, a little bit too sweet, maybe even a little bit too on the nose. Heidi, what do you think of that? Um, I think that might be a fair criticism, but I think that's how children form attachments, Hmm. right? That most of the time children are, they just give their whole heart to somebody they like. If, if they're, if they've lived a healthy life in which the adults in their lives are trustworthy and and that's certainly true here. So I think that this is very much, it's more realistic than that, than the, than that, I think. Um, Hmm. but I, I also think that that's maybe kind of fair. Like that's, it, there isn't really a lot of conflict in the entrance of these mysterious, um, you know, strangers, they are immediately friends. And so it's not necessarily that same kind of development, the way we see, say, in Little House on the Prairie, when it kind of slowly dawns on Laura, that maybe these engines, these no good, dirty engines are actually humans. That's, that's part of the trajectory of her development is that she's so prejudiced like her own family. And then she sees then that they actually are humans and she learns something from that. That's not necessarily what's going on here. This is more of an immediate attachment of a child to uh, these figures. Uh, and then they, that plays out in the rest of the story. Hmm. Adam? I, I don't know if, if the characterization of the friendship between Ralph and two dog is too on the nose. Um, Unless, unless the friendship between Ralph and High, the horseman with the blue roan, is also too on the nose. Sure, yes. <laughs> because it happens just as fast with just as little context. Mm-hmm. And it, so, so um, that it may be a feature of the story that Ralph Moody is telling and yeah, the, the right. protagonist that he's describing. Here's a guy who's looking for uh, relationships and friends and is an open-hearted boy that makes them quickly. I agree with that, Adam. Yeah. I think, and it felt to me more like the introduction of a character, the way a play is, right? Like in, in yeah. Shakespeare, here, the, this character is introduced in scene one, this character is introduced in scene two, <laughs> and then kind of it, it builds towards something. That's more what it felt like to me than the development of the relationship being part of the, the upward trajectory of the story. So mm. I, I, I think you're right. Mm. Yeah, either, either of you think of, um, uh, Rachel, um, is it Lind from Andrew uh-huh. Green Gables? When you thought of when Miss Corcoran was there, I could not help but think of Rachel. Is that her name, Rachel Lind? Rachel Lind. Oh, yeah. Is it ever? Yes. That's how, exactly <laughs> who I. That's who, <laughs> that's who I thought of. I am much more endeared toward Rachel Lind than I am to Mrs. Corcoran, who actually seems kind of petty and unkind. Versus Rachel. Yeah, Lind, but maybe, but maybe we haven't. Maybe we haven't heard the whole story yet. Maybe, well, maybe I Corcoran haven't comes heard around. the whole story yet, so I'm hoping that that's the truth. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, Marilla, that's yeah. the kind put strychnine in the well. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. That's are, true. I mean, are you are you a <laughs> Anne of Green Gables uh, fan, Adam? Oh, since I was in high school, hmm. oh, I've been watching that. it since the eighties. Hmm. <laughs> have you have you read the books? No, I haven't because okay. I started to once, and it was um, I, I realized it within the first chapter that the script for the for the TV series had been lifted word for word <laughs> from the novel, and so there yeah. was no need to read the novel because I actually seen it acted out verbatim. <laughs> yeah, I actually I have not read much of that series. I know Heidi, you've read you guys have read all of them, right? Yeah, like a billion yeah. times. But I also am a girl, 
So, <laughs> like a, a billion and I times. Haven't, and I haven't read many Westerns. So, yeah, yeah I, um, I, I remember, I mean, how, I probably started watching those also in the 80s when I was four. Um, I'm just trying to remember when my parents started make, they probably started making us watch them. And then, and then, then I, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure every 17 year old or 14 year old, probably a boy who watches those at some point has a crush on Anne with an E. I'm sure I'm guessing. Of course. Um, and every, every young woman is in love with Gilbert Blythe, <laughs> the way it works. Uh, the pig, maybe the pigtail scene's a little on the nose too, right? Since we're all talking about on the on the nose. Well, yeah, exactly. Children's stories. You're allowed children's to children's stories. On they're the supposed nose. to be on the nose. <laughs> yes. Well, let, let's wrap this up. Um, since we, we're going to have to do two episodes this week, so um, for the next time, we're going to read. So we're going to start with the chapter called "Haying," and then we're going to go through. Um, I should have looked this up um, ahead of time. Um, Logan can take this out. Um, okay, so we're going to read uh, chapters 11 through 16 for, for the next episode, which takes us from haying up through a good month with no school. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. Um, for teachers and for students, I imagine. Um, so as we're going into the rest of this book, there's a lot of things that I didn't bring up because, you know, I... We, there's things we could have talked about if we were talking about the ending, but we're not talking about the ending yet. So I didn't bring them up. But as we're going on, I would love to hear what are some some additional questions or things to look out for that you know that either of you have as you're reading. Heidi, you know, questions you might have, especially since you haven't read it before. And Adam, you know, questions that, or thoughts that you might have maybe having read it before. Adam, mm-hmm. I'll let you go first. Well, I think the... Um... By chapter ten, Moody is has laid out uh, many of the main characters, and as we've just been talking about, done it sort of um, in a done it quickly and without a lot of nuance or context in every case. And I think the next thing to watch for in the next handful of chapters is how quickly he goes around uh, deepening those relationships and giving you more context for them. Mm-hmm. So I would be look on the watch for Ralph's relationships with particular. Uh, people the other characters in the story and how they begin to deepen hey while you're still here uh do you have a do you have a character that you especially gravitate towards that you especially love in this book is it just the narrator or is there someone else that that you're just really fond of well i we're i think we're we're directed almost explicitly to be fond of ralph's father Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as the um as the guide and mentor and the kind of moral compass of the piece and he does everything he can do. I think the, the author, I mean, to um, to direct our affections toward Ralph's father. So I would say, father for sure. Hmm. Heidi, what are you going to be looking for? Um, I am looking for exactly what you pointed out last week, David, which is what is the conflict of this story? It there are so, you you used the word episodic when you were talking about it earlier in the broadcast or the podcast today. And I liked that word because it does feel like that. But at the same time, there also seems to be a clear direction towards an overarching story. And to be honest, I'm still not quite sure what that is. I think it probably, you know, has something to do with the water rights. There seems to be something brewing. Um, But I'm, because 
this kind of rising action section that we've been reading is so episodic, I can't quite tell what it is yet. Uh, and so that's, that's what I'm watching for. Hmm. All right. Well, Adam, it is the read. Wait, what is it? Read aloud. Our, our podcast radio, yeah. radio, radio read along. Yeah. My yes. brain just froze for a second as it does at least 30 times every episode. Um, <laughs> I think I just hit my quotient though. So, uh, and that's got its own feed on iTunes, Stitcher everywhere, right? Yes. And then our main podcast is bibliophiles with an F, which also has its own feed. All right, cool. So yeah, everyone go subscribe to that. Uh, make sure you check out what's going on on Center for Let. Follow them on all the places you can follow them. Instagram, Twitter. Are you on Twitter? I think you're on Twitter. Uh, Facebook. Emily knows. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Search Center for Lit in all the places that you can find things on the internet and you'll, you'll be good. Uh, make sure you're following them. Heidi, what are you up to these days? Oh, I'm working on a webinar I'll be doing uh, with y'all over at Circe next week on um, the history of the quest for the Holy Grail, which has a long and mysterious and illustrious history, the development of that legend. So I'm kind of deep in that. We are, uh, David, you know this, you, we are about to launch the spring issue of Forma Journal, and it has some amazing content. So mm-hmm. we're wrapping that up, putting that together. Um, and we are coming up on a regional conference with Circe as well um, in the middle of May. And so yep. preparing for town. that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, if you're interested in that, that's going to be all about um, the idea that sometimes when you, te- well, always when you teach, you have to remember that you're farther along in the journey of learning the thing that you're teaching than your students are. And so, so you you have to sometimes take a step back and you have to relive the journey of learning the thing. And that can be a difficult proposition. Um, It could also be inspiring. And so we're going to talk about the various aspects of that as the theme. So if you're interested in joining us for that, we're going to be doing that in uh, mid-May. So make sure you check that out. Um, And then, yeah, I want to give a shout out to the editorial team of Forma, which includes a couple of Center for Lit people, Ian and Emily... Andrews have been uh, working with us on that, and they're um, they're all right. They're 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 all right. You <laughs> pretty well. They are rather more than all right. As yes, <laughs> they're amazing. Yeah. So um, it's been that's just like I said earlier. It's been awesome finding ways to partner with Center for Lit and other great organizations. So we have a really really great editorial team, um, and um, it's made it so we can go quarterly. And so if you're interested in that, you can head over to formaljournal.com to find out how you can uh, subscribe to that. That issue will be going to the printer this week. And then um, heading to your mailboxes in a couple weeks after that or whenever our printer you know, gets around to sending it. So yeah, we're excited about that. Uh, lots, of, as, lots of essays in this issue on architecture and painting and things like that. So... Um, you know, we always talk about literature. Those sorts of things are going to be common. Um, classroom stuff is going to be there, but we wanted to keep talking about different arts as well. So check that out as well. I guess that's it. Thanks as always. Oh, thanks, David. Hey, thanks that's for having us. Yeah. Great, as always. So for Adam, for Heidi, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, thanks for listening. I'm David Kern, and we'll be back with you next week. Happy reading. <laughs>